0: Good day, friends. Welcome to Jesus in the Center, one-year Bible podcast. I'm Reiko Zek. Today is day number 35, February 4th. Our readings today come from Exodus 19, 2021 21, and Matthew 23. There's a lot we could say today. I'm going to start with going back just to one thing I missed yesterday. In Exodus, the people are gathered at the, at the foot of Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai, And God is on the mountain and he says that I'm going to, if you listen or hear my voice, I'm going to make you my treasured possession. I'm going to make you a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And there's, they they say, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And then there's this this thick cloud, there's the trumpet blast, there's uh, the fire that's going up. And it says this, God says why he's doing this. The Lord said to Moses, behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. Unlike some religions who just say, well, God or the angels spoke to Muhammad in a cave or God spoke to Joseph Smith by himself. No, here, this is a public performance of God. God comes in front of two million Jews and he shows up on the mountain. And it's not just between God and Moses. There is that because they cannot go in God's presence at this moment, because God is holy and powerful, and being in God's presence will incinerate them, like being on the moon without a moon suit. Well, with Moses and this thing that God is bringing here, he does it publicly. All the people here, this is back to verse, I think it's nine, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. God gives signs. Now, for us, looking back in history, we say, well, we don't see any signs. There's no signs for me to see. But we can take the word of the two million Israelites who were there. We can take the words of of the 500 people who saw Jesus risen from the dead. We can take the evidence of their changed lives and, and so on. So uh, and we can believe God's word here because... So many people saw it and experienced it. So that just wanted to point that out. Today we see that there will be this, a covenant that God is going to make with the people so that they can be as a people in the land that they're going to go to. All the other covenants in the Bible that we've seen so far is the covenant with Noah. And then that's the covenant of grace, that, that God will not destroy the earth by water again. And, that also, and then we have these, this covenant with Abraham and then reestablished with his sons, Isaac and then Jacob. And this was a covenant to bless the whole world through the seed, through Abraham's seed. And we know that this is Jesus. So that, that covenant, we might call it the covenant of grace, that covenant is picked up again. It's called an eternal covenant. It's also enlarged when we get to, to David the Davidic covenant that God would seat a ruler from his line to be on the throne of David forever. So that's that's another one. And then Jeremiah will tell us about a new covenant. So the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant, which we see fulfilled in Jesus, all those are basically the same. It's the same covenant, same agreement that God is making that he will come by grace. Just a quick recap, there is basically two covenants. The one covenant, Abrahamic. Davidic, New Covenant, they're all covenants that are one way. They are dependent on God and God alone. And then there is this other one that we'll read about today. The Mosaic Covenant that we read about starting today, this Ten Commandments and all the ceremonial and civil laws that go with it, it was conditional. It's never called an everlasting covenant. And we see this in the New Testament. Once Jesus comes on the scene, especially once he's baptized, the Mosaic Covenant, the laws of Moses for the the civil rules the ceremonial rules they will come to an end in Jesus now some of the moral stipulations will continue and we'll see that so this kind of gets broken down like this there's in chapter 19 there's this summons and to come to this to the mountain and then there's a consecration all the people must uh, prepare themselves the priests even must consecrate themselves or they'll be destroyed because God is holy The people get ready. And then there's, starting in chapter 20, there's the book of the covenant. There is this covenant that God is going to ratify with his people. And it takes a while. We're not going to get through it today or tomorrow. But it starts with a title. God spoke all of these words. The title is the words. It's only in the Bible referred to as the words, the ten words. Three different times in Exodus and in Deuteronomy, it's called the ten words. And it's hard to break down these moral rules in 10. We can make easily probably make 8 or 11. It's pretty hard to make it 10. So that's why you see, you know, different groups of people who number these. They number them slightly different. The most difference is, is there four laws relating to relationship with God and then six with people or is it three and seven? Lutherans go with three and seven. It doesn't really matter. But there's also a historic prologue. Verse 2 says this, I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. When God repeats this in Deuteronomy chapter 5, he enlarges this because they've been wandering for 40 years and he needs to remind them. And then God gives them the, the 10 words, the 10 commands. And so we can take these two ways. We can take these as commandments. You shall not have any other gods. Or we can take them as a promise. You shall not have any other gods. I will be your God. Something to think about. One is, yeah, they are commandments. You shall have no other gods. And God is so clear on that, that I am the Lord, your God. You shall have no other gods before me, or we could say besides me, in addition to me. And he goes on, and you shall not make for yourself a carved image. And he explains this in detail. This would be a a, a great temptation to them to make a graved image. This is what gods were. Gods were something that you could see and touch and bow down to and it was a temptation to them. We'll see this even before the Moses comes down from the mountain a uh, second time. They will be breaking this commandment. They will make a grave, graven image. Uh, we went to chapter 32, which there's a lot of stuff in between, but it's really not very long afterwards. It, it's it's uh, almost immediately they make a graven image, a, a God that they can see and touch and worship. It says here that the Lord is a jealous God. Did that make you think other places? Chapter 34, it says that his name is jealous. How could God be jealous? Well, think of a marriage, right? Can you have three in a marriage? No, there's only room for two. A third party is not allowed. In the same way, God, God will not allow us to be, we could say, married to other gods that don't even exist. They're just We know now demonic forces to deceive and delude. He's not going to allow that. We know also that a God is not just a a literal idol. I I should say an idol is not a literal God that we can shape and fashion. It is, Luther would say, anything that we fear, love, or trust above God. So Paul in the New Testament, Romans chapter 1 says, it is that idolatry is exchanging the truth of God for a lie and worshiping that which is created rather than the creator. He says all other places that covetousness is idolatry. So it's not just literally making a God and bowing down to it. It might be making a white diesel truck and bowing down to it, right? Talking to myself here. Well, did this confuse you? How he visits the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments or thousands of generations. This seems confusing. Other places, God is really clear, even in Deuteronomy, chapter 24, verse 16, as well as the prophet Ezekiel, a couple places. God is really clear that He does not hold children liable for the sins of their parents, nor does He hold parents liable for the sins of their children. No, it doesn't work that way. Here He's saying that sin has an effect. If If you're a gossip, we'll say, and it's just what you do all the time. You can't wait to hear things about people and then talk about it behind their back and slander them. If you do that, there's a pretty good chance that your daughter, your son, will do the same thing. That is the visiting the iniquity. It will it will bear in your line. We saw this in the patriarchs. Abraham and Isaac had the same kind of sins. Uh, they say their wife is just their sister and so on. That This family sins are passed down. And that's what he's saying. However, he's saying that he shows a steadfast love, his chesed, his uh, his unfailing covenant love, to thousands of generations, or to the thousandth generation. And obviously, God is—he's trying to show three to four versus thousands. There's no comparison. Sin, if passed on, will destroy. It will be visited. It will come to destroy you. Yet my steadfast love, that endures infinitesimally longer. That's a big word. Good job, Reiko. <laughs> you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain or you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. And this could be when you say OMG you know, you, or you say I swear by God that I will do this and then you don't do it. It could be that. it is. It could be not taking God's name uh, in a holy fashion but using it flippantly. Yeah, there is that. Luther tells us that this means to it says, do not misuse the name of the Lord your God. What God is really doing is saying, use my name, but use it in, in a holy way. How do we use his name? We, we see this all over the scriptures that we call upon it. We call upon God's name. And he is faithful in answering. So not only will he be our God, uh, we can call upon him in every trouble. Right? And then he says, remember the Sabbath day. Not to work. And now, in the context here, These would be people who are used to working. They're used to working long days. And in Egypt, they would have worked nine days, 12-hour days at least, and then they've had one day off. That was how their work week went. It wasn't a seven-day week. It was a 10-day week. So then they got one day off in 10. Here, God is saying, He is so much more gracious. Every seventh day, you don't have to work. Just stop. Just rest. Now, The Jews later would try to put this in a box and put a lot of rules on it. And God himself, even here in the the Old Testament, will put rules on it. No fire, no movement, no work. But they will later try to define this exactly. What does it mean to not have a fire? What does it mean to not have work? What does it mean to not move around? How far can you go? And and whatever God had said, they would try to put an extra rule on top of that to make sure that they could keep it. Well, here the purpose is that you might rest. And we see when these ten commandments or 10 words are repeated in Deuteronomy 5, God focuses on the Sabbath as a day of worship to re-experience God's salvation and how he had brought them out of slavery. So today to to remember and recall, we see in the New Testament that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, that he, um, John chapter 5, perhaps he, he broke the Sabbath, he healed on the Sabbath, which in and the Jews' opinions may have been breaking it, even though Jesus knows that that's not breaking it. So the Sabbath is, in some ways, done away with, or we could say fulfilled in Jesus. We think of this as Hebrews chapter 5. He comes to give us the true Sabbath rest. Matthew eleven twenty-eight: Come, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Jesus has come to fulfill the Sabbath. So in the New Testament, we are never told, you must uh, keep the Sabbath. Jesus teaches that we're free from the Sabbath. But yet we're also told, Hebrews 10.25, that we should uh, encourage one another daily and uh, continue to meet. So the Christians, free in Christ, they did this revolutionary thing where they met to worship. And it wasn't on a day off. It was the first day of the work week. And they gathered because that was the day that Jesus rose from the dead Sunday. It would be like us gathering at 5 a.m., on Monday mornings, to worship Jesus because he rose from the dead on that day. Well, We, of course, know he rose on Sunday, but that's the idea. It was counter-cultural. It was these faithful Jewish people who who had experienced uh, what God had done on Sunday to raise Jesus. So that's when they began to meet. So that's, by the way, uh, an amazing testimony of the reality of Jesus' resurrection, that he rose because these monotheistic, Sabbath-keeping Jews now began to meet on Sunday, so it was revolutionary. All right. Well, there's a lot more there. Uh, We see other commands: to honor your father and mother, shall not murder, shall not commit adultery, shall not steal, shall not bear false witness, shall not covet, and now you may not covet your neighbor's house or your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant, his ox or his donkey or anything that's your neighbor's. Now we we read this and think, well, this is really, this is really old-fashioned. I don't covet my neighbor's ox or his donkey. But at that culture, at that time, if they had a household, the the animals were kept very close in the house, maybe a second room, a room off the side to give heat in the winter, also to guard them because an ox or a donkey was very valuable. It was almost a part of the house. Of course, they'd have names, and it would be so sad when, when they lost one of them. God is saying here, don't covet those things. I'll give you everything you need. God says, I will be your God. All right, well, that is the moral stipulations. Uh, there. Are then as we read into chapter 21, there are civil stipulations. How will you then live as a people when you get to the promised land? God is trying to make a place, a good place, that his Messiah might come. We do see the Messiah come in chapter 23. And wow, did you say, wow, Jesus is being a little bit hard on them? How many times did he say, I'm going to just read these hypocrites, hypocrites, child of hell, blind guides, blind fools, blind men, hypocrites, blind guides, hypocrites, 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 snakes, brood of vipers, laying into them. Well, why? Because they are false teachers. They are leading people astray. They've been given the key of knowledge and they're locking the door on people. Jesus knows that if people listen to them, they will be led astray. They'll be led into a pit. This is sort of like Yahweh fighting the gods of the Egyptians. It seemed pretty harsh, these ten plagues. That's hard. That's harsh. Why isn't God being nice? Well, because God is a jealous God. God is a faithful God. God knows that what we need more than someone being quote-unquote, nice to us. We need someone to be true to us, someone to tell us the truth. And that's what Jesus has come to do. He's come to tell us the truth. Here he is. I don't even know if he's necessarily talking to the Pharisees or if he is just warning the people in the temple. I'm not quite sure. We know that Jesus's heart is not one just to point fingers and condemn. Here, he is condemning the teachers. They are not true. But take a look how it ends. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You who kill the prophets and stone those who who are sent to you, how often that I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you are not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. Why is the house desolate? Well, Jesus knows that this house of Jerusalem will not receive its Messiah. Its chief teachers have plotted together how to arrest and kill the son of David to arrest and kill the king who has come to them. And Jesus says, For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So I don't understand this exactly in the context of Matthew. Although I do think uh, that Jesus will sort of disappear. He will not do any more public teaching here. And so he. this is his final warning. He has warned them not to listen to the Pharisees. And he has reminded them that he wants to gather them. And so the next things we see is Jesus teaching his disciples about the end, the end of the world, his coming again, the final judgment. And then we see him celebrating the Passover. We could say instituting the new Passover, the Lord's Supper, as the Passover lamb, him being crucified and his resurrection from the dead. So And then his ascension, his leaving his disciples as witnesses. So that is what's coming up around the corner, but he doesn't have any more public words here. So this is it. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets, how long have I longed to gather you as a mother hen gathers his chicks? And I think that is still true for us today. Well, there is a lot there to think about and digest and read about and contemplate and understand, but we'll leave it for the day. Go in peace. Serve the Lord. Thanks be to God.